0: My name is Mike Matuzzi, and joining us today is Tom Cordero. Uh, Tom is uh, the brother of Frank Cordero, who uh, we interviewed in March, and uh, that interview was posted on uh, 42921 for those who may be interested. So, uh, Tom, uh, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm glad to share some of my story with you, and uh, hopefully it will have um – some meaning and, and some resonance and those of you who are listening. Um, I, was, I was born into the Catholic faith in 1954, uh, so I'm a cradle Catholic. And my, most of my life, all the way really through high school, was, was existed within what I would say a Catholic cocoon of culture and rituals and, and beliefs. Um, and, as I reflect back on that time in particular, one of the things that I found really most remarkable about that was uh that there really was no place for God in my life at that point. it was the church the you know it was obedience to the church was obedience to god and and, as I look back to it, I think the only place that God had in my Spiritual imagination, my, my uh, faith imagination, was as the scorekeeper. God was up there in heaven keeping score on what I did or did not do, that either was in the bounds or out of the bounds. And, but that was it. That was it. God was just the scorekeeper. Um, and I do remember in particular, I must have been maybe 12 or so. A break in that consciousness and a little bit of doubt, and it was it was a story about my brother Rick, who's younger than I am, and um, and all I remember in particular was that that Rick was in just an anguish and crying and sobbing, uh, and I remember my mother asking, well, what what's wrong and And he was just totally beside himself because he had not fasted for the full three hours before going to communion. And he thought Mm. he was going to go to hell. Mm. I just, at that time, I just remember, I I just, I could not fathom that that God would condemn my little brother to hell because he didn't fast for three hours before communion. That was Mm. the beginning of the crack in, uh, that kind of cultural cocoon understanding of faith and God. Um, But it was a small crack, and I was able to, I guess, um, keep that trauma uh, submerged in my life to some extent.
0: That's a a good crack to have, Tom.
1: Yeah. So after high school, I went to Iowa State University, which, of course, is a secular uh, university. It's a public university. Uh, and so I, this was the first extensive time I had outside of this cocoon of Catholicism. And of course, at that because of that, then I had to make choices about things like going to mass on Sunday, because there was nobody there to get me out of bed or force me or guilt me into going to mass. And I have to admit that the first year at Iowa State University, I was really a real party animal, I think, you know, going to an old boy Catholic high school and not really knowing or dating girls. And so I just, you know, when I finally got out of that, I decided just to let it go. And so I really became a a real party animal and my grades suffered really bad because of that. But after that first year, it, it became clear to me that my heart really wasn't in it. Not, you know, and I guess maybe this is where the cultural Catholicism kicked in, but I was just not born to be a party animal, uh, and, I, and it just made me feel really empty inside. So by the end of that first year in college, I came to the conclusion that, that I was made to be good. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't long after that that it became clear to me that while I might be wired To be good, I was really a miserable failure at being good. Mm. And that that was a really tough place to be at that point in my life. I mean, not bad enough to be really bad, not good enough to be really good, but stuck Mm. somewhere in between in a a kind of a limbo uh, kind of a state. Uh, One of the things that helped me through that time and and moved me in my faith journey was my introduction to and involvement in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Mm. And I think probably the thing about that, 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 uh, uh, beyond all of the charismatic gifts and the praying in tongues and all of that stuff, was what it gave me was it gave me a faith that was based on a direct encounter with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Not just a theological proposition of faith, not just a a doctrinal teaching of faith, but a real experience of the person of Jesus in my life. And I remember in particular one night during this time, uh, I remember lying in bed, feeling really frustrated and helpless about where my life was going. And, And I just remember metaphorically just kind of throwing my hands up and saying to God, you know, I just, I give up. You know, I really give up this isn't working the whole Christianity thing. I just can't make it happen it's not it's not working for me. I give up and mm. and what I remember about that moment is uh, it's as if God had reached his hand out to me and placed his hand on my heart and mm. and I remember being overcome with a a deep feeling of calm and it was if God was speaking in my heart saying you know Tom it's about time because I know you can't hack it you know I never intended you to do this all on your own what you need to do is to let go you need to trust me you need to give your life over to me and it was at that point that God became real.
0: Mm-hmm. How old were you then, Tom? Is that uh, still college-ish?
1: Yeah, 19, maybe 19 at that point.
0: Yeah, excellent.
1: And, and Jesus became real to me, more real and as real as any person in the flesh. Mm. I had thought up to that point that Christianity was a hard climb, a struggle up a mountain of rules and regulations. But what I learned there, I began to learn, and I'm still learning now, is that it's more of a letting go and the letting of God. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean it's easy. On the contrary, for me, I right. tend to be uh, a control freak. Letting go is very, very difficult. Uh, you know, I, I remember a, a story once, uh, that somebody told that, that, that really captures that, that whole thing. It's about a guy who was cleaning. He was on a skyscraper cleaning the windows and his scaffolding broke and he fell down the scaffolding and grabbed hold of a flagpole and was dangling there for his life. And so he started screaming, God, help me, please, please help me. And then miraculously, Jesus appeared in the window just outside of where the flagpole was. And the guy said, Jesus, help me, please save me. I'm slipping, my hands are slipping off this flagpole. Save my life. And Jesus said, I can help you, but you got to do exactly what I tell you. And the guy says, anything, Lord, please, please help me. And Jesus says, let go.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> and the guy on the flagpole says, help me, help me. Somebody else. Uh,
0: <laughs> any so, advice but that, in other words, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, one way to describe... The whole trajectory of my life has been continually learning what it means to, to let go and to fall into God. And in fact, the most radical thing I've ever done in my entire life, and that includes all of the arrests, all of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the resistance work that I've done, but the most radical thing I've ever done in my entire life was to say with all my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. hmm and to say that and believe it and embody it, that, that was the most radical thing. So my entire discipleship journey is continuing to learn what that really means and how I live that out every day. Um, now, one, another turning point in that journey of figuring out what it means to fall into God and to say and believe that Jesus is Lord is you know my relationship with my brother Frank and the Catholic Worker movement. When I uh, was a senior in college, um, the pastor at the Newman Center, a parish where I was at at Saint uh, or at 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 um, at uh, Iowa State University, I was at Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, uh, Student Center and Parish in Ames, Iowa. He asked if I would take a job full time as a campus minister uh, when I was done with my senior year. Um, and and I, you know, I prayed about it and, and I thought, yeah, sure, I could do that, I would love to do that. Um, and so uh, I began working as a campus minister, uh, and they gave me an apartment just uh, across, the, uh, across the way from where the parish office and the parish center was and that was great because I had – all I had to do was just to walk to go to, to to work. But one of the side things that happened on that was is that because uh, I was so close, uh, at in the evenings when the, when the parish center was open and if a homeless person were to walk into the building and ask for help, usually I was the first person called. <laughs> it wasn't the pastor. It was me. I was the first person called. Yeah. Now. I had, by that time, already been involved in taking students on a regular basis to the Des Moines Catholic Worker to do volunteer work. And I and I have always admired uh, my brother Frank and his commitment to serve the poor in the Catholic worker mode uh, and that radical personalism, which really felt to me so right and so good. So uh, at the time... Uh, when these these kind of incidents would happen in my work in, in Ames, at the time, what I would do is I would I would come down to the parish office and meet the whoever the homeless person was, you know, uh, make him some sandwiches, put a few dollars in his hands, and send him out the door. Um, and that just began over time to not feel right. Um, the best way
0: Tell us about I, uh, that. What do you mean it didn't feel right?
1: Well, I kept asking myself, well, you know, I have an apartment. Why don't I just, you know, invite that homeless person into my apartment? Uh, mm-hmm. And just like the Catholic workers would do in Des Moines. Um, and the problem, I mean, a, a metaphor, a way, a way of understanding that and how it got to me is sort of like walking around with a pebble in your shoe. It was mm-hmm. an irritant. <laughs> It was,
0: yeah.
1: well, irritant. It just would not go away. Um, and and it bothered me. And then I remember in particular one Friday night, uh, and, I, and I, I, I to be honest, I had already had one beer. And my plan that evening was to go out with friends and, and do some drinking and having a good time. And sure. sure enough, you know, the phone rings and the receptionist at the student center said, Tom, there's a homeless person here. What do you want me to do? And um, uh, I, I said, uh, you know, and, and the other thing, too, is as I was praying about this, this pebble in my shoe, it became clear to me that there were three reasons why I did not want to invite a homeless person into my, into my, into my uh, apartment. The first was, uh, uh, was a physical safety thing. Well, what if I invited the person, came in, and he, you know, he beat me up? But I could deal with that. that. That I pretty much dealt with and set aside pretty well. Okay. The second thing was, well, he might steal my stuff, you know, in my right. apartment. That was a little harder to deal with. Uh, what I discovered in, 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 in praying about that was that I was in a position where my things began to own me instead of me owning them. That I allowed my things to put parameters on my compassion and my discipleship. That was a tough one to deal with. But ironically, I think it was the third level that really, really was the most difficult. And the third was, would I be taking advantage of? What if this guy's really not poor or anything and he just wants in other words it was my ego. It was my own personal sense of I don't want to be made a fool by taking someone in. That was a surprise to me. I didn't know it was there until I really prayed about it. Yeah. Those were the issues working on me. Uh, so the call came. I'd had my beer. I was ready to leave for the night. But for some reason, and I and I would, I don't know if it was the beer or the Holy Spirit or a combination of both, I said, send him over um, to my place. And so that's what they did. So it takes about five minutes to walk from the parish center. Uh, center to my apartment so in the intervening time i went through my apartment and i went over to my stereo and i said goodbye stereo and i went over to my tv and i said goodbye tv oh, wow. and I went, okay i went a whole exorcism exercise everything in the apartment that i had any kind of an attachment to and i just kind of did i did this kind of exorcism you no longer have power over me mm-hmm. so the doorbell rang and I answered the door and it was a, a small little guy. He must've been in, at 35 at the most. Uh, and ironically, his name was Francis. Um, mm-hmm. so I invited Francis in, I said, you know, I said, uh, you know, I got his, and I listened to his story. I made up a, a, a bed for him to sleep on the couch. I made him some dinner. I showed him how the TV worked. And then I said, Francis, I've made plans to be with friends this evening. So I'm just going to leave you here and um, we'll see you in the morning. Wow. So I walked out that door. And and what I remember the most about walking out that door, it was as if a lead coat had been lifted off my shoulders. Wow. It was as if for the first time in my entire life, I got a small taste of what it means to be free, to Mm. truly be free. And it was exhilarating, it, it was, and it was intoxicating, and it was addictive.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I, for the first time in my life, understood what it meant to be free enough to do what was right. And I began to understand that freedom, freedom is the ability to do what you know is right, regardless of the cost. I had no idea what would happen that night or what was going on in my apartment when I left, but it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. Uh, so I came home that night. Francis was asleep on the couch. I went to bed. When I got up in the morning, Francis was gone. He'd already left for the day, I guess. So I never saw him again.
0: Never saw him but, again. Wow.
1: But that, that was a beginning of, of a journey of faith and social justice and charity that you know I've really been on for the last... Forty years. Eventually, I moved out of my apartment, and with some friends, we opened up our own kind of Catholic Worker hospitality house in Ames. There, and and served the poor uh, through that um, that that way on, uh, on a, at a house we rented near campus. Um, and and that that really was the beginning of all of the peace and justice work and all the other stuff that I did.
0: Hmm. Tell us more. It's fascinating. Tell us more about um, what you did in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and and so forth. You're in your 60s now, but uh, pick up that piece because I think you've caught us up till maybe early 20s at this point.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, understanding that um, this addictive nature of true freedom and what it means – it, you know, the, one of the first things was that I, um, with some friends, like I said, we started, it's called Lowe's and Fishes Hospitality House to serve uh, homeless people in Ames because there was no shelter or anything in Ames at that time. Um, and, you know, um, probably, again, the most important thing about that experience for me was um, the humbling Nature of it. I mean, Catholic worker people don't have um, any kind of false notions that they can save the world or end poverty because of their small acts of hospitality. And um, every t- the thing that was probably the most challenging and, and fruitful for me is the realization that I could not even solve the smallest of problems that people had when they came into our door. Uh, you know, I could offer them hospitality in a place, but it wouldn't even begin to really, really uh, solve their problems. And that solving problems was not uh, was not a priority. I learned that it was it was being and journeying with, and standing with, and walking beside, and listening to stories and cherishing stories and in the joint kind of helplessness and uh, to be able to say, you know, uh, here's a safe place for you until you can figure out what to do next. Mm. So that was, you know, to to, to stop playing the savior. Um, And, you know, the toughest thing about hospitality for me was not saying all of the yeses yes we have room for you but it was the times when i had to say no when uh we just couldn't take another person they were just we were just too full or when a person's behavior became so disruptive uh and chaotic we had to i had to admit we as a community had to admit we we just can't help you we and so keenly aware of my own human limits and being okay with that, that was yeah. really an important piece of my hospitality work uh, and all the work that I did with Catholic workers since that time. Um, we also started at that point a, uh, a peace and justice um, newsletter for, the, for, for college students. Uh, We were actually, it was called The Voice of the Prophet.
0: Uh,
1: It started out as a publication of just the Catholic Student Center where I worked, but eventually we had, it was co-sponsored by Lutheran Church, uh, uh, also the Methodist Church and the United Ministries in Higher Education, the Mennonites. It was was an ecumenical effort to basically educate college students about social justice from a faith-based perspective. Uh, so uh, we were we we published and 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 put out free the free copies throughout campus, and we also had a, a mailing list of about a hundred different campuses around the country at that time, who wow. were you know getting you know bundles of of our of our newsletter. This of course was all before the internet, and all of that. All right. That's that's the way you know. So I was yeah, That's the way we did that kind of stuff. Um. The other thing, too, then, in moving from that again with the whole idea of what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord, was uh, beginning as and as you hear the stories of our of of the people who are our guests at our house, it became clear to me that there was something wrong in our society. There was just no reason for many of these people to be homeless, and I'll just give you an example of that. Um, I remember sitting at the table with a bunch of our guests and in in, in community members as we were eating dinner, and they were all talking about all of the psychotropic drugs that they were taking to, to, to deal with, you know, mental and, and emotional issues in their lives, you know, and, and, and the institutions that they were all in, you know, um, and, and out of. And in and out of. And I mean, the story was just incredibly repetitive. And it occurred to me, I says, you know, these these people, they don't need to be institutionalized, but they don't and should not just be cut loose and put out on their own on the street. They just need a little help. You know, why can't we do that as a society? You know, uh, and we've had people, you know, circulate through our house um, and, and come back a second or third time, because the, the 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 path was they'd get all straightened out. They'd be released from um, whatever facility was that they were in get stabilized. They'd take their drugs. But once they got out on their own, eventually they'd stop using their drugs because they thought they were okay. Then they would, over time, get worse and worse and worse and end up in our house. And then we would have to you know, commit them back into a a place where they could get, you know, stabilized again. Then they would get out again, and that whole cycle would return again, over and over again. It just didn't make any sense to me that we as a society, we could do better. That's just one part of the homeless population that we were dealing with. Um, So I began to see that we needed to address root causes, and that's where you get into justice issues. Uh, in particular, uh, this was in the nineteen early nineteen eighties again, and the the nuclear arms race was was raging out of control at that time. Uh, we had a president in the White House who believed you could fight and win a uh, limited nuclear war. Ronald Reagan and his mm-hmm. administration. Um, and of course, uh, those of who who were alive and around at that time remember the nuclear freeze movement and such. So I. I began to see that we needed to stop spending so much money on our military and start redirecting that to meet the, the needs of the people who come through my house and through my, my community. Um, that led me to um, the realization of, of, uh, of taxes and how taxes play a large role in that. So in uh, 1980, 80 actually, um, I began to do uh, tax resistance at that time. Um, Tell us how that works. Huh?
0: Tell us how that works. What does that mean, tax resistance?
1: And tax resistance, uh, there, there's a lot of different ways it works. Um, but the theological work is, is that if it is wrong to, to possess nuclear weapons and intend to use them, then it must be, and then it is also wrong to pay for them. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, that, and again, and, 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 for me, it was always about, um, letting go, um, doing what I know in my heart was right. And then trusting that God would, would, would provide. Um, you know, it was after that, you know, I began to do more and more risky things, uh, in regards to, um, my resistance to the arms race um, and to and to nuclear weapons in particular, but in general, and I began to get involved with nonviolent civil disobedience um, in that regard uh and as I got more involved with that, there was of course jail time involved with that mm-hmm. um, But I also did some soul searching about that. It just seemed to me that if I was going to continue doing this kind of risk taking, which involved the possibility of jail time, that it wasn't fair to the ministry that I was doing in campus ministry or to the students to be, you know, just gone um, doing jail time uh, in this kind of fashion. I didn't think it was fair. So I eventually resigned from the parish, on good terms, um, in order to do full-time uh, resistance work um, <clears throat> as a faith-based uh, peace and justice activist. Mm.
0: And moving forward, then, you've done that. I'm looking at your bio. You've done that for really 40 years um, Last 20 or so, Justice and Outreach Minister for a local parish in Naperville, Illinois, which I think is a suburb of Chicago, right?
1: Well, Napervillians would be offended by that remark, (laughs) but but we are in the western suburbs, yeah.
0: Western suburbs. Um, Let me move you forward because we're probably running a little bit low on time. and I want you to cover everything you want to cover. You wrote a second book that... um, Tell us about that, and it dealt with suburban life, and, you know, it kind of deals with your thoughts, I think, on the future of the church, so seed in good soil. Tell our listeners more about that.
1: Sure. Well, when I I came to St. Margaret Mary Parish in Naperville, I was hired to be the Justice and Outreach Minister, and it was a full-time job to educate about Catholic social teaching and giving them opportunities to act upon it, um, and I was committed at that time and still am to a to what I would call a, a, a strategy of uh, of, of um, including peace and justice in everything, not making it an individual little subset within the parish, but to integrate it into every aspect of, of parish life. That was the model that I used. That's what I said when I came. To interview. That was my way of doing things. So um, what became clear to me was um, that peace and justice work uh, in most parishes is usually done by a very small group of people um, who uh, usually operate in isolation from the rest of the parish uh, because nobody wants to deal with them or have anything to do with them. and um, and usually doesn't get very much support. So and then that, so I, I when I formed a group here to be help me with peace and justice work, I told them I said our job is not to do the parish peace and justice work. Our job is to help the parish do its peace and justice work. So it's the parish that does it. That we just facilitate and help make it happen. Um, and I, I could go into. the the experience of doing that, but what became clear to me is that one of the biggest obstacles to making that happen was that over time, parishes in the United States, in particular suburban parishes, uh, I don't want to speak for rural parishes or urban parishes, but suburban parishes, is that we've taken on a model of church in which we treat our parishioners more like customers than as disciples, disciples in a discipleship community. Mm-hmm. Parishes spend an enormous amount of time and energy treating their their parishioners like consumers, and providing goods and services that will meet their parishioners' needs, um, in order to provide a better product than the church down the road, and so that this consumer-based model of of parish was really the big hindering point in making peace and justice really integrative. And it really kept everything in the parish in silos, a silo for this, a silo for that, because we were treating, again, our parishioners more as customers that need to be serviced than as disciples that need to be drawn into community. So. What could be done to start to break that down uh, and to begin to treat our people not as a collection of individuals, but as a community, a community of disciples? And, and it, it, we touched on the idea of, of going into, the, into a, an understanding of parish as a mission-based parish, uh, but for us, a missional approach to parish was based under the belief and an understanding that our parish was called into existence to serve God's purpose and not our own. And therefore, the major task of any parish is to discern and understand what that calling is, and then to and then to you know, shape the parish around that calling, and that. Because parishes are a unique, and each one individual parish is unique, that calling is going to be unique to each individual parish. And so we could not depend on a bishop to give us our calling or anyone else. It had to be discerned within our community and embraced by our community in order for it to be effective and something that we could really begin to build on.
0: Tom, let me ask you a question. Uh, Given all the work that you've done in parishes, and I think you've recently uh, retired from your uh, work with St. Margaret Mary uh, Parish, uh, what does it mean? What is the future of the church or maybe suburban churches in your view?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you come to the end of a journey like mine, and I've been 23 years at St. Margaret Mary That question of what does it all mean, and what did you really accomplish or is is one that that both haunts me and um, and um, and is intriguing also. and I think it's a really an important question to ask. Honestly, I'm not sure what I've really been able to accomplish. People have told me that you know I've had a great impact in their lives and such, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for the ways I've I've grown. Uh, I, I do come away with the conviction that the Church lives in her parishes. You know, the Church doesn't live in the Vatican. The Church doesn't live in the uh, in the uh, the diocesan pastoral offices or in the chancery. The Church doesn't live in you know all of the schools and hospitals, as great as all of those things are. Um, the church lives in her parishes, um, and probably what saddens me the most is that from most progressive peace and justice organizations that I've been involved with, that that, that they've really given up on parish. They really have given up uh, as uh, as being anything worth the effort and worth the struggle. And I certainly understand the despair there. And I certainly understand, um, how bad things can be in parishes. Um, you know, I've, you know, from the day I came to this parish, there's always been people who objected to what I've been doing, of who I am, of what I've been trying to do. Um, I'm constantly battling that, uh, and it gets tiresome and and there's no doubt about that. But, um. You know, I, I've been more focused on the journey and the process, and trying not to uh, get hung up on the um, the outcome or yeah. "quote unquote" successes. Um, I just know that for all of its um, for all of its uh, shortcomings and frustrations and and mind-numbing bad leadership at all levels that the church and is a place where the gospel still is being preached and heard some most of the time in spite of its leaders a place where people are wrestling honestly with their faith and what it means and how to live that out in the world today um and the parish is the one place where you don't pick and choose who you're going to be with. You've got to learn to get along with people who really, really think and believe differently than you. Um, and honestly, I've grown from that. I've grown from all of the relationships I've built with conservatives, with people who you know I would normally not be connected with. Um, so my hope, my hope is that we we don't give up. On parish, with all yeah. of its horrible shortcomings, and I always tell my my uh, my progressive friends this: is I know that by working in that institutional church, that I am morally compromised. I am morally compromised in so many ways by doing. Be this. more
0: specific about that. Uh, what do you mean by that? You, I know, I am morally compromised, morally
1: compromised in the
0: institutional the church
1: church treat, t- treats women. I'm morally compromised by the way the church t- t- treats the LGBTQ community. I'm morally compromised by the way the church uh, is overly, overly uh, 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 focused on pelvic politics um, <clears throat> that, that doesn't listen to its own children. Uh, and you know i I get that. I get all of that. I understand that. Um, but the church is not supposed to be the place where everything is rosy and good. You know if I read you know my, one of my favorite books of of the Bible is is not the Gospels, although i I cherish them and and read them all the time. What I found most fascinating is the book of Acts because it is a book filled with conflict. And the mm-hmm. conflict is not just between the Christian community and the outside world. It is within the Christian community. You know, there were a lot of disagreements. You know, and it was always the Holy Spirit running ahead of the church, pulling them, pushing them, whatever it took to get them to move from where they were to a new place. Um, and I think that, that that story of Acts is still playing out today. <clears throat> yeah. And so you know, kind I don't have viable. but I do yeah. have I do I do have a commitment to continue as best I can. Now maybe after I after I've uh retired at the end of this month, I'll have a different feel and maybe I'll just say to hell with it and, and walk away. I hope not, but um but that's where I stand now. Maybe yeah. I've wasted my entire life I don't know. That's up to others to decide. But I do feel that I've been faithful to the call as best I could uh, in the space and in the place where God has placed me. And 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 I hope I hope that I've been able to do some good.
0: Well, you've obviously done a tremendous amount of good. Let me in closing ask you a couple of uh, short questions that Peace and justice. Um, you've devoted your life to that. Why? Why so important to you? And why should it be important to us?
1: Right. Well, to me, um, peace and justice is is important because it's a way of walking authentically as a human being on this earth. Um What I have learned uh, through contemplation is, is, and then, you know, echoed by, you know, Pope Francis, is that everything is connected to everything. That the boundaries we imagine between ourselves and creation, the boundaries we imagine between ourselves and others, is an illusion. It's Mm -hmm. an illusion. That we are all part of one reality. And Peace and justice is an exp- and, a, and a commitment to that is an expression of that deep and profound spiritual truth mm-hmm. that I, I that my destiny is tied to the destiny of every person and every creature and, and every rock and every river in this beautiful place we call Earth, um, and that care for that uh, mm-hmm. that. Uh, respect for that—that that protecting the dignity of all of that—is what it means to be a human being. So I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm not trying to be a hero or a peace and justice activist. I'm just trying to be a human being and all that that means.
0: Yeah, and you're listening to to your call and following it, and have followed it uh, where it's taken you. Back to the Bible, you talked about not so much the Gospels, but the Acts being um, Acts uh, being important, that community and conflict, peace. Uh, except for Jesus, uh, figure in the Bible that you most relate to or most motivates you, is there a uh, person or persons?
1: Well, you know, the, the Old Testament prophets, you know, are ones that I can... I, um and I get a lot out of um, mostly because they, they went through such a hard time. So when I go through a hard time and I'm having a bad week or if I'm feeling like, you know, I'm just being you know I'm not getting anywhere or, you know, the, the you know, the next call from parishioners that that I'd be fired when that happens. You know, I find comfort in the fact that all of these prophets had a similar problem. You know, uh, I love Amos, the book of Amos, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah is a big one. Gosh, what he went through. Um, And then, in terms of New Testament, you know, for me, um, you know, I I have a soft spot for Peter because he was such a screw up. Um, Yeah. You know, and that gives me some comfort as well uh, in that regard. Uh, He just never seemed to get it right, but he was still plugging away. So that gives me hope
0: All along the same lines. How about, uh, saints are kind of notable figures. Have there been certain folks, um, who've really inspired you, motivated you, helped you in your times of doubt and discernment?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, a couple, one, I think primarily would be, um, Thomas Merton. Um, you know, I, I've always, you know, I've always resisted the idea of anybody who tried to label me as you know oh that the guy he's the tax resistor, or that guy he's this or that, yeah um I've always felt to myself as as primarily if I had to identify who I am, it would be to the word a monk I, I for years before I was married and had my daughter, I was a a lay associate at uh New Mallory Trappist Monastery outside of Dubuque, uh. Uh-huh. I felt most at home there. You know, I'm, I'm a frustrated monk. Merton's writings were really important and continue to be important to me. And the fact that he was able, even uh, in a cloistered setting, to be so profoundly uh, aware of and insightful of the, the justice and, and peace issues of his time uh, really mean a lot to me. So Merton was a really and continues to be a real, real Strong uh, influencer in my life, and then uh, you know the, the Berrigan brothers there in terms of of my peace and justice activism as well um, especially I think uh, probably Dan more than than Phil, mostly because Dan I love his poetry and uh, and his his spirituality' is a little bit more accessible to me uh, than Phil's. I remember being. Reading in the federal penitentiary, reading one of Phil's books, and feeling guilty that I wasn't doing enough. <laughs>
0: oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> you know, and Phil has that, that uh, impact on me. So I was like, oh my God, you know. Uh, but, but Dan, a much gentler soul, he, he works on my soul in a different way, I guess. And, um, and I appreciate that.
0: Returning to the contemplative dimension, to the frustrated monk in your time in the Trappist Monastery, it, you know, a lot of our listeners have a contemplative dimension. Um, how does that work out in your life, that heavy reliance on on nature, on Lectio, on centering prayer, or how do you feed that contemplative dimension?
1: Well, for me, I, 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 Lectio Divina has been my primary mode. Um, I always start the day with, you know, at least 20 minutes of of, of of meditation and contemplative prayer and Lectio Divina. Um, That is really important. And to me, you know, um, mindfulness, which is, I think, the the goal of of contemplation, to be fully present to the moment is Mm. an important challenge to me because, you know, uh, I tend to live in my head. (laughs) You know, so mindfulness reminds me that You know, I need to get out of my head and be present to what's happening. And, and, you know, as all of the, you know, spiritual teachers tell you, only when you're mindful, when you are present to the moment, can compassion be born, Real, you know, really see and hear what's going on in your face, you know. Uh, instead of worrying about tomorrow or regretting about yesterday, but living in that moment so that compassion can be lived out. So to me, that's always, always been a very, very important dynamic in my spiritual journey. And then allowing that compassion to move me into solidarity. You know, I think some of the times, I think some of the biggest Problems uh, and mistakes people make is to let that compassion move into a service model, you know, where you're helping from a position of, of, of power or influence or entitlement, helping those who are less entitled, less empowered, less privileged than you. Mm-hmm. What solidarity, again, is that whole idea and, and what I talked about in terms of what I learned in my Catholic worker experience, and that is walking with another and, and listening and allowing that other to change me. So that solidarity is so important. And, and, of course, that leads to humility. And Again, the realization that I cannot save the world, that you know, it is not my place to, uh, to, to try to dictate what others do, um, and that I cannot even solve the smallest of problems in my own life, let alone the problems of other people. So to walk in solidarity. And that, of course, leads to humility. And it's sure. only when we are humble, when we realize that we are um, we're just human beings. Uh, we are not the gods we think we are. And our five-year plans for saving the world are never going to come to fruition. Once we realize that in all humility, and we are free, then we are really free, free to live in the moment, free to be all that God has called us to be, free to fall into God, and trust that God knows more about what we need, and what will make us happy, than we even know ourselves.
0: Mm. It'd be the ideal place to end, but uh, you know, as a lawyer, you never know if you should ask the next question or not. So <laughs> let me let me go forward anyway. Um, turns out to be this turns out to be your last day on earth, Tom, and you've just got uh, 60 seconds to kind of leave some wisdom, some thoughts uh, for others. You know, what you've learned along the way, uh, you know, and we're all sincere seekers out here, you know, working with our own little problems and discerning issues and so forth. What what would you say?
1: Hmm. I would say that, you know, life is a mystery to be lived, not a problem to be solved. That um, that you can trust when you fall into God that God will get you in the right place. That doesn't mean you won't make any wrong turns or any mistakes. But that regardless of all of those things, God will get you in the place that you need to be if you trust that God can can get you there.
0: I am glad I asked the last question. <laughs> that was uh, excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Tom, for your uh, time and sharing your story and uh, your wisdom. Great stuff. Thank you, sir.